welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potzagire, your host, an artist and educator. Dr. Amir Whitaker weaves together his experience and knowledge as an educator, musician, and human rights lawyer, and spoke about how those things have inspired each other throughout his life. I loved how he talked about following a question, which led to more questions, as he pursued degree after degree. He spoke about how his multiple titles and roles really come back to a passion for justice and the arts, and his mission to free the youth. He touched on his own personal background with the injustice system, which he shares more of in his book, The Knucklehead's Guide to Escaping the Trap. He also offered some advice for teachers in connecting with students and breaking down barriers. Amir was very generous in allowing me to share some clips of his music on the podcast, and I love being able to use this audio format to the fullest. Amir is an educator, author, civil rights lawyer, and musician. He's the founder and director of Project Knucklehead, a nonprofit organization empowering youth through music, art, and educational programs since 2012. Often referred to as Dr. Knucklehead, Amir was introduced to the criminal justice system as a child when he visited both his mother and father in prison. At age 15, Amir himself was arrested and entered the juvenile justice system. Problems at school eventually led to him being expelled. Despite these hardships, Amir went on to complete five college degrees. As a lawyer referred to as a civil rights and education stalwart by the Daytona Times, Amir has negotiated settlements and policy changes that have improved the lives of thousands of youth across the country. Amir is currently a policy attorney with the ACLU of Southern California and a researcher with the UCLA Civil Rights Project. At the Southern Poverty Law Center, Amir worked on a class action lawsuit on behalf of incarcerated youth receiving inadequate education, mental health, and rehabilitation services. Within the Juvenile Division of the Miami-Dade County Public Defender's Office, Amir represented incarcerated youth and developed training materials. He has taught varying grade levels and in different educational settings for over a decade and has held teaching certifications in Florida, California, and New Jersey. He has also delivered keynote speeches to thousands and written for leading publications across the country, including the Washington Post and Time magazine. Amir's recently released autobiography has been featured on ABC News and in The New Yorker. As an artist, Amir has worked with musicians around the world and has traveled to over 20 countries, tracing the influence and music of the Afro-diaspora. In the process, he has taught workshops on hip-hop and beat-making in Costa Rica, El Salvador, Jamaica, Guatemala, and other countries. He is the co-founder of the Afro-Unidad, a cultural movement that united Afro-descendants around the world through art and justice. Dr. Whitaker is also a published author, and his Encyclopedia of Afro-Diaspora Music, 
compiles over 200 styles of Afro music across the Americas. He received his doctorate in educational psychology from the University of Southern California, his Juris Doctorate from the University of Miami, and his bachelor's from Rutgers University. Let's hear from Amir. I have the pleasure of talking with Amir Whitaker today, and he is a musician, an educator, a civil rights lawyer, an author, and founder of the nonprofit Project Knucklehead. So, so many roles. I always like to start just hearing kind of your journey and how you got to where you are now. And usually I'm like, how did you get into teaching and making art? But for you, it's like, how did you get to doing all of these things, having, you know, multiple degrees, multiple sort of careers? Would you want to kind of walk us through your journey, your path, or maybe maybe the abbreviated version of like major things that kind of shaped you? Because I know there's a lot in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The abridged version. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I attempted to Capture that in my autobiography, The Knucklehead's Guide to Escaping a Trap. And even that itself is three stories within one with Amazing. three different voices. But I feel like it's it's just all art. All all the different roles are just all expression, you know. And yeah, work and life is art. And I'm definitely trying to get there. But I guess, yeah, one of my earliest ambitions was just to be a creative. I remember in, in sixth grade, they asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I put cartoonists. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I always, in my in high school, my favorite class was graphic design for sure. My teacher, Mr. Moore, had a huge impact on me. I think as a teacher, I rem- still remember him in his office and just visually what it looked like and just the connection and rapport with him. And mm. <laughs> from just being a raw teacher, from cursing in class, just expressing himself and getting us to, to understand expression. Mm. But I definitely, I think the journey for me was just through education Going to school in undergrad, seeing that's when, you know, first connecting with people from other areas outside of my quote unquote inner city area and seeing what they had access to in their schools and different inequalities like that made me want to pursue, you know, education and and justice more. So and that's when I came to L.A. to to go to graduate school at USC, studying educational psychology. And I started with the master's, just really wanted to do curriculum stuff, which I find now, even as a teaching artist, is one of my favorite things, creating curriculum, you know, because it, it, you can just do so many things with it and across so many disciplines and subject areas. But so originally I wanted to get more into curriculum. That's why I went into grad school. And then more questions emerge. And that's when I, I pursued my doctorate. And even though I was supposed to answer questions with that, even more questions emerge. And then I went to law school in pursuit of like, I guess the bigger question, what is justice or how do, how do we create justice? Because again, mm. it's, it's, it's an art and it's an, it's an expression. We don't, it's damn sure not a science. There's no justice formula, you know? Mm-hmm. But in, in law school, which is when I started Project Knucklehead, actually exactly 10 years ago from now, we started Project Knucklehead while, while I was in law school. And I was working in a juvenile courthouse and just seeing a lot of youth coming in and out of the system Sometimes the parents literally pleading with the judges saying like, you know, my child doesn't need a cage or punishment and, mm. you know, something like that. They need maybe mentors, support programs and different things. Right. Then I started just volunteering, connecting with one of the programs serving youth after after they were arrested. And I noticed they didn't have art. They didn't have music. They didn't have 
they actually didn't even have a library. And that's something we had to work Mm -hmm. on as well. But I think that the philosophy was that the students deserve punishment, you know, and they don't deserve that expression, but also the students don't deserve that much in resources as well, you know, and and that's in general with our education system here in America, right? Like it's just lack of investment. Even as a civil rights lawyer, I find myself fighting for art and it's, it's that lack of resources, lack of prioritization, you know, lack of appreciation for it, but definitely saw that while in Miami and yeah, just started the program. That was 10 years ago. And now 10 years later, we've evolved and done different things and we've done things around the world. We have programs and fellows, artists around the world we work with. I mean, we literally, Project Knucklehead, we just had an arts contest that the open call ended two weeks ago from our project called Afro When He Died. It's just like a global African diaspora project with artists. And we received over 200 submissions across 15 countries. Amazing. Yeah, just some of the most inspirational art. And we're facilitating collaborations across countries and creating other artist opportunities and actually teaching. We had a session where we taught one of our youth, one of our fellows, because I definitely believe in, you know, as a teaching artist, I mean, the youth actually empower us and can teach as well. And Mm -hmm. and we work with some of our youth and, and he was 16 and he was teaching beat making because he's producing these global songs that, you know, are pretty much underground hits in different areas. He's in Peru mm. and we work with him and I, I work with him as a teacher, but he also taught me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Amazing. So that's Project Knucklehead where we are now. It's, it's definitely evolved and being here in LA over the past five years, we started before the pandemic. We had a program that was like a drop-in center for youth who were transitional age youth who were either experiencing homelessness or had mental health needs and could get that support there or just drop in, take a shower or whatever. And we just provided music, you know, on Freedom Fridays. That's what we did. And when the pandemic happened, it kind of shut that down. But then working with some of our youth, we started Freedom Fridays again as a protest at City Hall, actually. And every last Friday, we did this creative uprising, we called it, you know, marching from City Hall to LAPD station, you know, and, and demanding the government stop over-investing in carceral systems and police and jails and, you know, LA having one of the largest jail systems in the world. And that came from our youth actually saying, this is what we want to do. And they were Mm -hmm. teaching dance. You know, we were dancing together on the footsteps of of City Hall and they were teaching dance to Mm -hmm. dozens of people as a form of healing, as a form of rebellion and, you know, knuckleheads on on the City Hall (laughs) step. There's so much, I'm picturing that scene and there's so much joy in there too. It's this mix of rebellion, but also, and, you know, protest and anger, but also joy in that you're using the arts as a form of protest, but in this very energetic and, you know, just dancing and making this music together. Absolutely. Yeah. Really beautiful. And just such an incredible way that you're weaving together all of your own experiences, starting from education. And then I loved how you talked about finding a question and going after that question, which led to more questions and more questions. And right. now I'm I'm like, I'm going to have to keep watching. And what's the next question going <laughs> to uncover? <laughs> Where's that going to send you? <laughs> That's what I realized. It's just all questions and, you know, art. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, multidisciplinary artist, like it's, it's art is a form and a way to answer or explore answers. And sometimes there are no mm-hmm. answers. That's what I'm learning. As lawyers, they always say, 
you know, maybe is the answer to every question sometimes, you know, <laughs> otherwise lawyers wouldn't exist sometimes because we always argue the maybe. Mm. But I think, yeah, life is just exploring questions. It just, I, it took 12 years of college for me to, to realize that. But actually, still, even growing as an artist, because that's another thing, commitment to your craft, you got to evolve. I might actually go back to school for my sixth college degree to become a music therapist, you know, just to connect more with the art and connect more with students. And I guess then you call them, you quote unquote, clients or consumers of, you know, mental health services. But I mean, we're already mm -hmm. healers as artists, whether artists acknowledge it or not. But if, if you're using your art and your craft, teaching youth or whatever your population is, you're healing. But I want to study it clinically, you know, and just see how to apply it because, I mean, we need it, right? We're, we're, it's a time where we really have to roll up our sleeves and like do it. Yeah, the focus on social emotional learning in schools mm -hmm. that, you know, like there was this huge focus there and now it's there's pushback against it in some places. Right. Because people are seeing that direct link to all the trauma we've been through in so many ways and that direct link to embracing identity right. through social and emotional <laughs> learning, but like this healing that you're talking about through the arts. Yeah, that's really you know, a beautiful thing, but it's also so frustrating to see all the pushback. And I right. guess I wonder, you know, you talked about how the youth you work with, you really are more of a facilitator that they're leading mm -hmm. a lot of this. Right. I was going to ask how you kind of handle that pushback, but I'm starting to answer my own question for you, <laughs> but with, no. you know, letting them lead and, mm -hmm. and I guess, how else do you kind of handle seeing so much pushback, so much like hatred out there and that it's just, it's a lot. Right. Yeah. I remember, you know, in one setting, you, you couldn't even have staples in the papers because the students were so criminalized and in one facility where they were holding them. And the pencils could only be the short little golf pencils with no erasers. And like the environment itself really didn't allow for a creative expression in many forms. And mm -hmm. yeah, but I mean, sometimes that's all you need though, is a pencil and a piece of paper, right? And we actually, <laughs> we use bucket drums with Project Knucklehead. We've worked with hundreds of people and given out dozens of bucket drums for them to take home with sticks and different things. And, found creative ways to work within the system and with limited resources to, you know, share ancient knowledge that's been passed down for, you know, generations and hundreds of centuries. And we use art in schools to really just, I mean, like decolonize and take back education to what it used to be, because that's what it was. And that's the way, you know, knowledge was transmitted and people connected, you know, and, and yeah, we definitely do that in whichever ways we can. Hmm. Yeah, I love hearing that too, that there's that ancestral connection. There's that mm -hmm. sharing the stories and helping students make those connections. I wonder if you can talk even more about that and maybe mm -hmm. like if you would have advice for classroom teachers that are that are trying to help make those connections and trying to, you know, bring those ideas into the classroom. Oh, absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's Again, going back to students and seeing them as more facilitators than or co-facilitators. And, mm. you know, even myself, I think this was about three years ago, I stopped saying that I was teaching and, and that I was just facilitating. 
because they all have the these knowledge, this wealth of knowledge, you know. So tapping into that and seeing, you know, we, we had some students and not even in Project Nuclear, but through my job at, with the ACLU because we have our Youth Liberty Squad and I do drumming with them as well. And we were doing an activity with students playing and they were shy at first, right? And because I just opened up the floor and said, all right, someone share rhythm, whatever's your heart's or soul speaking right now. And even though it was like our second practice and they barely did it, some students just started sharing and naturally came out these different rhythms and different mm-hmm. things. And we had to create that space though, where there's no such thing as failure, right? There's no such thing as offbeat or out of sync rhythms. It's just like what comes from your soul is appreciated here. And, you know, allowing students to to tap into that, but definitely, you know, pushing them, right? Facilitating the process where they can explore parts of their souls. Cause that's what a teaching art is. It's just like seeing how your soul expresses itself in different forms. And you, I think at the very beginning, no matter what, you have to create that safe space to where I'm thinking the student who eventually you know, took the, the bold step and started playing a rhythm that they never played, but they knew it was going to be received in love, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine that creating that space, making a safe space, especially within the justice system can be, or I liked how you phrased it. There's one part of the um, Project Knucklehead website where it labels it as like the injustice system, right? Who. Right. Which is so, you know, appropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I just imagine creating a safe space in that place can be really, really difficult. Is there, you know, anything that's helped you be able to do that for the students and the the youth that you're working with? Yeah. yeah. Not taking yourself too seriously, you know. I think mm-hmm. um <laughs> in some of those environments, you know, they're cages. So you have to understand people protest putting animals in cages, you know? So imagine how children are if they're in these mm-hmm. cages. And, you know, sometimes they might joke around. Sometimes anger might come out in different ways or sometimes there's different things. But, you know, just be patient. And if they crack on you a bit, bit or <laughs> roast on you a bit, find a way to actually use it as art, right? Because that's them expressing themselves and be lighthearted with it and, and find a way to engage and connect with the youth. Because I, I understand that's one of the biggest things, right? Is connecting with youth. But I notice, and this is, goes with all youth, no matter where, what country, because I've had the privilege of being able to teach and work with youth in seven different countries now. And sometimes there's a language barrier where, you know, I have a translator or I can speak, only speak limited parts of the language and just being yourself, you know, being yourself and because youth or any human being, they can tell when you're not, right? Mm-hmm. For art specifically, you can't fake the funk. You can't like not <laughs> be it, you know, you can't not be true. I think of all of my arts teachers, they <laughs> were some of the most quirkiest, whatever, but they were themselves, you know, whether it was like, remember Mr. Siegel, he was our music teacher, Mr. Banks and like, you know, like they were just themselves, you know, and, and connecting. And, and you could connect with them, whether it was a generational gap, a race gap, whatever, you know, you can connect with them because they were literally sharing their souls with you. And mm-hmm. um, you can see even when it was, quote unquote, corny or whatever, you, you vibe with it, you know. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that, you know, can't fake the funk. Right. <laughs> that you're, yeah. And I feel like you're, you know, you're talking about, we're trying to get students to be vulnerable. We're trying to get, you know, these mm-hmm. young people that we work with to to bear their souls. And in order to do that, we first have to bear our own souls. Like, we have to be vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, that can be scary, especially for teachers who haven't, you know, have gone through a teacher training program that didn't instill that idea or that, right. you know, puts you as like you are, what's the word, the the sage on the stage. You're like the, right. the bearer of all knowledge, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is just so, you know, false, but how to get kind of past that. I don't know if you would have advice there on, you know, being vulnerable yourself, kind of pushing, pushing through the fear there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And, and I think we all have boundaries and we all have comforts, you know, mm-hmm. but of course, sharing your art itself requires vulnerability at some level. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, vulnerability and there's like truth you know like being true to yourself and who you are because i like i I remember times when i was teaching something and i wasn't feeling or being true with it you know and the students could feel that and it didn't work you know and being vulnerable with it is is just like showing i I like to use the example of tupac actually in classes because we have our the main curriculum we have is called beat buds and beats stands for behavior emotions attitudes thoughts and then we added the S as like social. But when we talk about emotions, we use the Tupac song, Shed So Many Tears. And we talk about how he's literally crying in his song. But, you know, you've never seen Tupac, you know, Tupac Shakur, this hardcore rapper, gangster rapper, quote unquote, thug life tattooed on his chest. You've never seen him cry, right? But mm-hmm. here through his art, his song, he's literally crying and he's just it's telling all these stories and crying to God, crying to himself, crying to his family, asking why. And we like to use that song to show like, here's one of the forms of vulnerability, one of the highest forms of vulnerability, you know, in art. Mm-hmm. So using examples, using other artists, that's a way, you know, because maybe I didn't share my vulnerable songs with me crying because Lord knows I have them, right? I, <laughs> I didn't share them in that moment. But, you know, here's a here's an example, Tupac Shakur. You know, he's really being vulnerable and crying, especially when working with young men, because we have this, I mean, we, we're embedded with this tox- toxic masculinity that you see. I mean, look at the wars happening with men, you know, doing, right? It's it's mm. aggression and it's rewarded. It's it's applauded violence. It's, it's just a lot of toxic things you have to undo. So being vulnerable, you don't have space to be vulnerable and women have it no easier, right? Because you know, all humans have to protect themselves, right? So using examples in art, every art form, you know, you can point to great artists being vulnerable. And I think that's a great gateway. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really meaningful way to approach it with young people. And almost like you're giving them this permission. You're saying, look at this person that you might admire and how how they you know how look at how Tupac like expressed himself mm-hmm. and was able to share these really you know vulnerable things like maybe this is something you could do because I know you've got a lot of hurt that you probably want to get out and like it might feel better to get it out so right yeah 
I feel like that could be a, a really amazing way to help break down some of those walls they have up. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's not a question in there, just like kudos. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, but I am also interested in your own art. And, you know, you said in there, like, I don't always share my own vulnerable, (laughs) vulnerable songs. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you would maybe not necessarily share those with us, but like talk about your your work a little bit, your music a little bit with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. for listening. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm jumping in to share one of the tools that I love. If you're thinking about starting your own podcast or video series, Zencaster is super helpful. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally and then uploads crystal clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high quality raw materials to work with. You can try it out for free at zen.ai slash teachingartistpod and if you do decide to sign up for a pro account, you get 30% off with this link and you'll be helping support this show. I love Zencaster because it records two separate tracks to make editing easier, and all I have to do is send a link to the guest. It can also handle multiple guests, and there are options for audio only, recording audio while viewing video, or recording both audio and video. I usually opt for just audio so I can record in my PJs. (laughs) Now the secret's out. The link to get 30% off pro and throw some support our way is zen.ai slash teachingartistpod. I'll throw that link in the show notes as well so you can try Zencaster. Art is all an expression of freedom to me. My music I'm noticing as I've got more into my career as a human rights lawyer, really, because civil rights are limited and human rights are more what we just all have and what we, they're, they're not necessarily written in law. You know, mm-hmm. and we're, we're fighting to create this world where we're treated as human beings. Music has taken the form of more freedom songs and more expressions. And this was even before the 2020 uprising started, but I, I noticed, you know, whereas <laughs> earlier in my expression you know it was more not saying it wasn't conscious but it was just more internally reflective and different things you know and i I guess that's that's been my process as an artist and that's most 
artist, right? You, you definitely go through that internal reflection. But yeah, I think music being a form of expression to reflect my work as a civil rights lawyer. So sharing songs about, <laughs> I, I remember, you know, one song, because my job right now with the ACLU, I was literally hired because of the Trump election in, in 2016. The organization I work for, we fight for civil liberties and, and people were in fear. So they raised a lot of money and they hired people like me. And throughout the process of the four years, you know, they sell you to the Trump administration over 400 times. And like, those are my colleagues and we were doing that work. And so my songs reflected that tone. Uh, you know, I remember writing songs for them because they, <laughs> I'm that lawyer, I guess I get asked to perform a lot for our, whether it's a social gathering or different things with, with my colleagues, they asked to perform me to perform. And even actually just yesterday performing with Black Lives Matter in LA, every third Wednesday with Project Knucklehead, we perform mm -hmm. and we do chants. And I notice my songs are reflecting that now, you know, reflecting the moment and just reflecting what I'm doing. And yeah, it's great to grow as an artist in this moment right now. You know, I think we're in this time. COVID has forced everyone to kind of go in and hopefully refine and sharpen their sword and um, do different things. But then, you know, when like the reckoning moment started for some in 2020, it gave more permission for conversations. And I, I know some of my, my content and different things were just received a little better. <laughs> you know, I, I felt less need to filter stuff and, and I could be more radical in this moment. Mm -hmm. Even though I always felt, you know, as artists, you can, you, you're free to say whatever you want, but you just, you know, you don't want to scare people too much. Right? <laughs> you don't, but I think, you know, now, just even through art, just openly calling for the envisioning of a new world without these carceral systems. You know, Project Knucklehead, we've always said free to youth. We've always said that. That's been our mantra. That's been our, our model. But now people, the mainstream are more open to the idea of like, wow, maybe we don't have to have all our children in cages and all people, human beings in cages for different things, right? And I'm, I'm grateful that this moment allowed for my art to reflect that. And uh, another cool thing about my evolution is one thing I'm really proud of that I just finished as an artist, because it actually, when I started as a musician, it was one of the things that got me into it. Because my favorite album, or at least in my top three, is Curtis Mayfield, the soundtrack for Superfly. And he did the score to this movie, which I think is 1972. And it's just really earthy, funky, raw, true. I mean, Curtis Mayfield is one of the greatest songwriters ever. And it's just the vibe, the, the music tells a story. So I always wanted to do a soundtrack or score. And just recently I had the honor of doing the score and the sound design for a documentary on, on the Black Panther Party for their 55th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And it was right around that time, you know, to the 1970s. So I got to, you know, <laughs> go back to um, some of my influence with the Curtis Mayfield and just as an artist to tell stories with music, you know, even though art and, and music always is telling the story, but to put really, you know, heavy intention into telling the story sonically with, with the music. It was a challenge, but it was it was a way to grow and evolve. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Congratulations on that. Thank you. You know, like, it's like a dream realized. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Oh, I love hearing that. And something you said that really kind of caught me too was this like kind of taking the filter off or 
feeling more free mm-hmm. after you know this uprising with the murder of George Floyd and then so many other murders right and it just keeps coming but you know taking that filter off like that phrase i was like oh yeah that's you know as a white person i it's something that is not necessarily part of my daily life mm-hmm. although it should be right like <laughs> I'm not forced to confront it. And it's so valuable to hear your experience and to hear even that phrase that you felt kind of like, I don't want to say muzzled, but that's, you know, like you felt like you couldn't say everything. I noticed because like even when creating projects and songs, I noticed like, wow, you're really talking a lot about this. You're talking about this. You're talking about this, the same thing. And (laughs) I didn't, before 2020, I'm like, I felt the need to not, talk about it as much but now there's more of an opportunity I, I feel like even though people say the uprising is over I think it, it can never die because that was just the spark and now mm-hmm. we have this moment that we just have to continue and it, even that spark was just part of previous sparks right that and mm-hmm. things were just dormant for a bit and now I feel all artists can push boundaries more conversations because I've seen yeah I think artists artists of all races i think in this moment all issues i mean you you always have the radical artists with the you know i mean if you think of the notion of tearing down these statues what's been happening right what started yeah that's reclaiming spaces and i remember i think it was in britain mm. where one of the forms of protest was an artist actually created a statue and replaced one of the statues that they took down mm. you know and it in some way became permanent or something like that. So, you know, that's what the moment has started with the unfortunate death of our brother, George Floyd. Mm. And, you know, Breonna Taylor, so many more, but we we now have this flame, this torch that we got to carry on. Yeah. And, you know, the other side of that, that I see, and I feel like we're seeing more and more of that, I'm sure, especially as a human rights lawyer that you're seeing too, is there's this sort of pendulum there's this push Mm -hmm. and then you know we rise up and there's always the other side of that saying no 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 we don't want like go back right yeah you know you talked about how your work as a lawyer does influence your art and I wonder if that now is also like if those are kind of making connections for you and Mm -hmm. influencing what you're doing and the continued protests too that you're you know this like weekly, monthly creative protest that you're involved in, like how that weaves its way into your work as a lawyer. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a blessing that actually the protest Black Lives Matter, where they protest is by my job at the ACLU. It's on 8th Street and I get to go there and it's like a day at the office some ways, you know, when I get my job itself, I, I had to demand the creative space for it. And that wasn't the first time, but I, I've given my job, you know, like ultimatums. The first one came, well, the first one came with the demand that we have students. We needed to work with students, you know, because we do education work or, or work on behalf of you. And mm. we can't just speak for them. We have to work with them. We have to empower them. And I'm fortunate now because, you know, all those in LA listening on April 9th, our youth, we're having our first art gallery, the Arts Justice in Silver Lake at the Hyperion space, 2319 Hyperion. 
Um, that's the name of the gallery space. And you, you see students, they're going to be talking about the petitions they started at the school level to bring arts to their school, you know, at the state level to get the governor himself to now devote millions more to art and their path and their journey. And, and I had to demand that as a lawyer, because again, I, I think, you know, being a lawyer, social justice itself is an art form and youth, that's one of the ways that it expresses itself as a human rights lawyer for, for children. Then the second ultimatum I gave my job related to a film project that I was doing that required a lot. Of, well, it was a personal project that had a film component. It was like a self-development mm-hmm. as an artist project where and it, it was an ancestral homage project, too, where in 2019, when it was the 400 year anniversary of when the first enslaved Africans came to Jamestown and to what's known as the United States in 1619, I decided that I needed to do a 400 day tribute to my ancestors who couldn't drum and who couldn't express their culture and express their art because of cultural genocide laws. And as a civil rights lawyer, I did some research and found these laws all across the world, especially in the Americas, but in the United States going back as early as the 1600s where enslaved Africans couldn't play their drum, couldn't sing or or make, quote unquote, make loud noise, literally the things we were doing yesterday in our protests while expressing art, right? Expressing culture. Mm. And there was the 400 year culmination, or or I don't want to say anniversary, but this moment that I wanted to do a project. And I told my, basically it required three months of travel (laughs) through, before COVID, I traveled through 16 countries, no, 17 countries in nine months, actually. Wow. And if COVID hadn't hit, I would have gone through 30 countries probably in a year and a half over the 400-day journey. But it required me to drum and dance every day and specifically with styles of the African diaspora. So I had to go to, you know, Belize and study a style they call punta. I had to go to Argentina and study tango, which I didn't even know had Afro influence. But the word tango itself, you know, is an African word and had to go to, you know, Puerto Rico and just different places and in Jamaica and study, you know, reggae and dance hall. And I, I'm, my job as a human rights lawyer or my, my organization had to accept that, you know, and they gave me this autonomy to do it and travel. And then on the journey, I've met other human rights lawyers and we started just actually doing work and stuff. So it, it all kind of comes together. Incredible. I love the way you phrased it, too, that you're like, I'm doing this. Yep. <laughs> this is this is happening and you're going to have to get okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, you know, that you're spending so much time fighting for youth, but you're also fighting for yourself. Right. And, you know, I feel like that's something that educators have to do all the time as well. But that experience sounds just so incredible. And I imagine it was like this huge self-development project, but also gives you so much to bring back to the kids that you work with, the young people that you work with. Absolutely. You know, and I got to teach on the journey and through Project Nakwa, we actually donated our portable music studio tablet devices to where students are literally collaborating around the world now and can create music. And, you know, we helped build a studio and donated several laptops. And, you know, so it was like I was able to carry the torch wherever I went and that's what I noticed as a teaching artist. Well, really just as an artist, because I think all artists, you know, you have an obligation to share, right? Because mm-hmm. you acquire your skill through other people sharing. So, 
you know, not saying you have to like take an apprentice every <laughs> year, right? But you should share your craft and you should find ways to give it to those who need it most, right? If you're not formally doing it. And I know teaching artistry itself, actually, I was just on a call with folks all across the state, arts educators, and we're talking about the difficulty recruiting teaching artists right now. And all sectors are experiencing shortages with employment and different things, but some arts organizations are struggling to find good teaching artists. And we're saying, she was saying that, you know, being a teaching artist is quote unquote, a failure. You're a failed artist, mm. which, you know, like my friend told me, he's a musician. He always says his biggest fear is, is working at like Guitar Center or something like that, or a place where you sell, <laughs> you know, but when it comes to teaching and sharing, you know, unlike Guitar Center or any job where you're just capitalism, making money, you know, selling, like you only know your art because people taught it to you, you know, even if you, mm. like I myself, I purchased my first guitar. So that guitar right there looks like crack cocaine because I actually purchased my first guitar with crack cocaine on the streets. And I was self-taught for a bit, but I found mentors and people mm. showed me and even artists who I listened to who taught me, who I never met, but like I learned through their music. So all artists should, you know, teach in some form and more of us should teach and I, I think we need to go. I, actually, I was just looking at an ancient African proverb or not a, a proverb, but it was a journal from like the 1600s from someone who escaped slavery. And he was talking about his village in Africa. And he was just saying everyone is a poet, a musician, a dancer, uh, this or that. And they share like we, mm -hmm. you know, we don't live in a society like that anymore where everyone feels comfortable in expressing themselves in different ways. But I think artists, we have to recreate those connections to, you know, to the ways, the ancestral ways, because all cultures, that's what the ancestors did, right? And connected through our mm -hmm. culture more so than I think we do today. You know, I think today, that's, that's why being a teaching artist is a quote unquote failed artist, because capitalism itself really chews up artists. It doesn't value them. It doesn't value their art. And you really need to... All, all the artists I know, you kind of hustle some way on the side, unless you're like a super, you know, even even I know artists who, you know, a sister I was just talking to her yesterday, she has her own gallery, her own gallery space. It's open, you know, successful. She sells the art and different things, but she's an entrepreneur in other ways and does different things. And artists should really embrace teaching and accept teaching as like a lifelong duty. One of the most mm -hmm. inspirational artists you know, she's a master teacher, so I don't want to call her a teaching artist or anything. But this sister, she was in Marin County in Northern California, in Marin City too, retired arts teacher, retired and came back to the school because <laughs> they eliminated art. So after she retired, she was there using her own money to buy the art supplies and do the different things. And this was actually, unfortunately, you know, this was my first and, and my first case in, here in California, but it was also California's first case in school desegregation. The first time the Department of Justice opened an investigation in 50 years. And it related to this community, the black school that she was teaching art at for free, losing their art programs and, and funding and the school on the other side of town, you know, receiving the resources and different things. And mm -hmm. It, the Department of Justice actually found that it was <laughs> segregation, you know, in 2018, 2019. So this oh. is to now. 
And it was through right. arts education. You know, arts education is one of the ways in which school systems are separate and unequal. And you still see that. And it's art deserts, you know, across not just California, not just Los Angeles, but like, you know, all across the country, all across the world, where as one of my students described, and I think she got the word from sir, someone in, in England, but they're creative dead zones, you know, the schools are creative dead zones where the walls are blank and, you know, the halls are quiet and you don't hear music, you don't see dancing and or the schools suppress that expression in different ways. You know, we're here in LA and the school district had a policy where they confiscated art supplies through quote unquote random searches, LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, up until really up until 2020, you know, had this policy that they called random searches. And I met one student, she literally had a panic attack after they confiscated her art journal because they said it was a quote unquote tagging journal because she was a, you know, 14 year old Latina. And like they criminalized her and said, you're tagging stuff. This is whatever. And she had a panic attack. She was, you know, but she also was one of the students I was working with to fight to end that policy. And we did it through art, actually. So that was one of the ways that we fought for freedom through freedom of expression. Mm. Yeah. So heartbreaking, enraging, but also, you know, that story, it sounds like ends with something that gives us hope. And the work you're doing gives so much hope, just seeing, making those connections across the arts and justice and having the experience and the knowledge and the background that you have to be able to do that. I feel like you're one of a kind there. That's so unique and so important. Like, how do we clone you? How do we make more Amir Whitakers who can fight for the kids and the arts with the knowledge of the law? Yeah. I don't know if you have, you know, young people that you're mentoring to kind of come come up and like help with this fight. Oh, absolutely. They're, <laughs> and they're teaching me. And that's the beautiful thing. Project Knucklehead now, you know, our nonprofit, we have what we call Freedom Fellows, where we just give you artist fellowships. And because we're actually we're a volunteer based nonprofit. So even me, myself, I volunteer as an executive director. Mm. And I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I have a, a nonprofit lawyer salary, which is, you know, still upper working class poor in L.A., <laughs> but <laughs> I can still have this. It's not a passion project after 10 fucking years and serving thousands of youth, but it's like, you know, I, I'm, I've always been able to do it and have an impact through not just being an executive director, but being a teaching artist and, and working mm -hmm. directly with the youth. And now our model is, you know, we have youth freedom fellows who also teach, you know, they, mm -hmm. like I think of Maya Edwards Pena, who's just one of the most inspirational lights we've ever, that I've ever met personally, but definitely one of our greatest students. While she was a senior in high school at Venice High School here in LA, we were doing our Freedom Fridays protests in 2020. And she created, a form of dance protest that she had already started with, but we had helped her develop what we call body liberation and movement. And, you know, mm -hmm. she was 17 years old. She started doing it there. And now she's 19, you know, in her second year of college in Maryland. And she's actually teaching body liberation and movement through the framework of like 
we have to move in our bodies. We have to liberate our bodies because, you know, the body stores trauma and the body, especially during COVID, we weren't fair to our bodies. You know, everyone had body image issues and, and different things. So through our Freedom Fellows model, where she was our Freedom Fellow, she was teaching, you know, and I worked with her mentor somewhat, but she already knew what to do. And we just provided a stage through the steps of City Hall, you know, and through Hollywood Boulevard. I remember one time she was teaching right there on Hollywood Boulevard at a protest. And, you know, we got so many requests and demands for her to teach and different things that we couldn't mm-hmm. honor. And more than anyone's ever requested me, I'll tell you that for sure. You know, and now it's like the ultimate success, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And now she's doing it on the East coast. So it's, it's just an honor. Mm, amazing. Yeah. I love hearing that. I also would love to hear a little bit about Maybe the behind the scenes, the like nitty gritty, how do you actually fit all of this in? Like, what is a week in the life, day in the life sort of look like for you? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> Lord, fitting it in. I'm a Libra, so I'm always like <laughs> striving for balance, not necessarily, you know, saying I achieve it, but always trying mm-hmm. and evolving. How can I better fit? I notice that, you know, of course, the weekends, right? Saturdays, Sundays, that we, we have our community programs. Our, our main one is the last Sunday of every month. You know, we do community drumming and different things. And then our program during the week is on Wednesdays where I had to tell my job, like I said, I had to, it was, it was an ultimatum of sorts. Like, okay, on Wednesdays, I have to do this. I have to <laughs> drum with the community with Black Lives Matter. They didn't complain about that for sure. My entire career as a lawyer, which has been seven, it's going on eight years now, I'm in my third law firm and they've all been social justice, civil rights, you know, law firms, but I've always had a moment that I've had to demand and say, here's when mm-hmm. I'm teaching the youth. And they've always been, gratefully, they've always been understanding of that because we've always been working for the children, working on behalf of youth. I guess that's a, my form of expression, you know, is I call myself the knucklehead defender. You know, it's like I, I work with youth sometimes. Yeah, they may have gotten suspended. They may have gotten in trouble, but you know, they have the right to redemption and fairness. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, through the arts, I work with youth and, and I find the youth, the ones that have the biggest mouths and want to stand up and fight the power. Or, you know, some students, you've been through the foster care system and, you know, just want to fight and change systems that they've been through. And yeah, it's an honor. So I, I think demanding it, you know, and that goes with everyone, with family, partners, with with everyone just saying like, this is important to me because I don't know, I don't know how to live without giving that to the youth. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. Project Knucklehead, we say free to youth. And I, I tell people, you can put that on my tombstone, you know, because that's, I want to help provide that freedom of expression. And I find myself, you know, working with youth, like I said, Maya as, a, as an example, I got to be in her class. She was teaching, you know, so that's healing for me as well, you know, so Mm. get into it to where it's a level, you know, I remember mural projects with youth where just being a part of their creative process and just facilitating that and, and seeing them take something from a concept to a sketch, you know, to a beautiful piece of art that's going to greet them every day and make them value their school more and make it look more beautiful, make them want to come to school more. And yeah, that itself is a healing process, you know? So uh, mm. 
it's it's part of the healing for me. The one thing I am trying to balance more is, and I think that's eternally as an artist is like more time for my creative expression <laughs> personally as an artist because you know the lawyer, the project knucklehead, executive director, even though you know I teach, but my own art and because it gets secondary energy. So I, I understand what people say using teaching artistry as an example of like a failed artist, because if it's not your primary energy, you know? So I remember just being honest, like some days it would put me into a depression or a sad mood that I couldn't wake up and jump into my art and mm -hmm. create, you know, especially if my soul just was feeling something, you know, those times in those moments and having to jump into something else, even though I love my job as a lawyer. Well, I, I don't want to say all that, but <laughs> no, I'm not like, you know, happily ever after in love, but like, I, I'm grateful, you know, there's gratitude for what I can do and the opportunities I have to make and, and experience, you know, especially in this moment, but I still want to wake up and create most days. And there are days where, especially Mondays, Lord, I noticed mm -hmm. on Mondays, you know, it's not that I hate my job, and but everybody knows at my job that, <laughs> all right, just don't fuck with a mirror from nine to 12 on Monday <laughs> because it's like my I'm just burying my creative, you know, expression that I, I had primary time for on the weekends. And now it's like after work, but, mm -hmm. but it's, it's all right though, because the work itself has given me experiences to write about. Right. And as I mentioned before, mm -hmm. it's like, it's given me a story to tell when, you know, I get a call from a grandmother who doesn't know what to do after they keep pushing her son around. The school itself is bullying her son and pushing mm -hmm. him into different environments. And, you know, it's, it's different experiences and emotions that come from the experience, too. So it's a balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that work also brings up your own experiences as a kid and like. Oh, yeah just yeah makes you kind of go through that again or just think through like how did what what happened with me like how did I handle this and like how can I help this other you know this kid yeah no it was at first I noticed I didn't do all the healing like for example mm -hmm. when I used to represent youth who were incarcerated and I used to visit and it, I would get flashbacks you know mm -hmm. of either visiting my parents or you know, mostly visiting my parents when that door, there's this mm -hmm. moment where you hear the door slam, boom. And, you know, just for me triggered when I was a child and like, oh, saying goodbye to mom or dad, you know, I remember mm -hmm. going back to that moment, but then overcoming for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, talking about working with students like Maya who help you heal through this like lifelong process of healing. Yeah. I would like to kind of start to wrap up and I have a couple of questions that I ask everybody. So one is what are you curious about? And that could be like in your art or just in general, what are your current sort of curiosities? 
Hmm. I think who am I? That's the eternal one, you know, mm. because I still say, you know, I don't know what I'll be. Maybe one day I'll be a judge or an ambassador or, you know, different things. But who am I? How am I going to evolve and become? And I know that's a selfish thing, but <laughs> but how, how I relate to the world, you know, because I, I don't I give myself that freedom to evolve. So that's the, the question that's in my head. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, in the beginning of this talk, you talked about following these questions and mm -hmm. maybe that was, that was the question that was like at the heart of all of the other questions. Yep. Like who, who am I? Yeah. <laughs> Musician, educator, lawyer. Yeah. Everything author now too. Yeah. So much. Okay. My other question is a very light more sort of fun question. What is your favorite food? Hmm. Just to get to know you a little more. <laughs> you know, I literally just ate something, some Thai food, a kind of curry specifically that was, it begins with an M and it's aromic and it has some cinnamon or something in it, I swear. Mm. Because I started singing a, a Rick James ballad, like <laughs> enjoy about this. And I was like, wow, this is, that's literally like one of the greatest things you've ever eaten. And I was thinking like this is, and just Thai food generally is always um, mm. my favorite. But when I do fusion stuff and I mix it with like soul food, or maybe I mix it with like collard greens or something and like a curry with, with greens. But yeah, I think Thai food, but this kind of curry, but since I can't think of that, pumpkin curry is good. Um, just a green mm. curry, but I love, you know, noodles, different Thai, types of Thai noodles, patsy noodles, and just... You know, just Thai food. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So good. Mm. Well, I would also love to give you just space to give anybody a shout out or, you know, anyone that you'd want to thank for support. Yeah. If there's anybody you'd want to throw their names out there. <laughs> yeah, man. Shout out to, you know, our Freedom Fellows with Project Knucklehead because that, that's who teach mm -hmm. me. Shout out to our ambassadors with Afro when he died. That's definitely now teaching me, you know, we have 40 ambassadors across the world now. Shout out to the Youth Liberty Squad with the ACLU. Again, our gallery on April 9th, opening it up, and it's going to be there for a month. But they're pushing me creatively and, and soulfully and, and like as a lawyer, as a artist. So I think this, this gallery is going to culminate a lot of that because we're also pushing for the Los Angeles Unified School District to pass the arts justice resolution so that's hopefully will be in the news soon and will be voted on soon but this gallery should celebrate that moment or push for that moment so shout out to the mm -hmm. youth liberty squad awesome yeah and i will if you send me all those the details i will share that out you know it'll be here but like i'll share the links and whatever you know any of the links that you have for that and then would you also want to share, you know, how can people connect with you? Where where can they find you online if somebody's Absolutely. Listening? Find me, you know, on Instagram at Dr. Knucklehead. We have a website, drknucklehead.com. And yeah, some music finally coming. That'll be, I mean, I have stuff, performances and stuff on drknucklehead.com and on SoundCloud and different things, but some full music projects coming this summer. So be on the lookout for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely on the lookout. That's amazing. 
thank you so much for this. It was really wonderful to hear from you. And I'm just still in awe of all of the things that you do and thankful that you are out there doing all of those things. So yeah, thank you for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to talk with me and and be here. No problem. Thank you for the opportunity to chat. Thank you for what you do. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.